0: Let me take the preacher's prerogative to, uh, to give you an advertisement in terms of rejoice. For the next four weeks in Advent, I will be teaching a class in 302 and 303 on joy. And I know you think, oh, there can't be four classes on joy. Actually, there's a lifetime on joy. So if that floats your boat, you're entitled to come and Meet with us. Not only will it be a class that will be didactic, but it will be experiential as well. So, um, if you like, please uh, make your plans. So it's uh, Christ the King Sunday, as they used to say, and I would like to make a case today that we should rename it and call it the Reign of Christ Sunday. And as I finish the sermon, you can decide whether or not that's a valid issue. This morning's text comes to us from the Gospel of John in the 18th chapter, and this passage is usually read to us during Lent or Holy Week especially. Jesus has been arrested, had been taken to the holy religious leaders in the temple, and they know that they need the Roman okay in order to get Jesus crucified, and so they Take Jesus to Pilate, who was the governor of, of that area at the time, in his praetorium, in his office. And this text is the conversation that Jesus and Pilate have. Pilate had been talking to the religious leaders, coming and going in and out. Crucify, they said, and he's trying to find out on what cause. Then Pilate enters again the headquarters and summons Jesus and asked him, Are you King of the Jews? And Jesus says, Do you ask this on your own? Or did others tell you about me? Pilate replied, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not from this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Pilate asked him, So, you are a king? Blasphemous in terms of the Jewish religion and blasphemous in terms of threatening Caesar, the only king. You are a king? And Jesus answers, you say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pilate asked him, What is truth? This is the word of the Lord. What is truth indeed? And this story makes clear that it is the prerogative of kings and presidents to ask that question. And in so doing, undermine the very foundations and laws that are meant to provide a common agreement about what's real or not. These kings and presidents know that if you can undermine the credibility of truth, then you can say anything and the people will start believing it. That's why generally in the Bible, king is a four-letter word. This K word carries the weight of corruption, domination, authoritarianism, Henry VIII, George II, fill in the blank. What is truth, Pilate asks. Blinded by his own aura of power, engulfed in his own corruption, abusive, self-inflated, he's blind to the reality. Now the Bible as I said, doesn't like kings so much. It has this like love-hate relationship with kings. In Jesus' day, there were kings and kings and kings everywhere. You had Caesar. You had Herod, good King Herod. You, not good, bad King Herod. You had Pilate, who was acting like a king in, in the territory of, of Jerusalem or Israel. You had kings everywhere. They even called Jesus a king. Hosanna, king, coming to us as the coming Messiah. They expected in Jesus' day, the Jews did, that the second coming of David would happen. The second king would come and be much like David, the messianic king, to free Israel from Roman domination and captivity. But in so doing, they had lost sight of what king really means according to God. It goes all the way back to when Moses led the people of Israel across the uh, across the sea into the Promised Land, and and there were twelve tribes, and they had to conquer thirty-one different kings to overcome uh, enough to grab a piece of the land for themselves, and and you know the Jebusites and the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Dolomite. Uh, uh, that's a That's a rock, isn't it? All of the 31 different kingdoms they had to overcome. 31! And so they did it without a king. They did it with 12 tribes led by Joshua. Well, after a while they settled in, and as tribes tend to do, once you settle in, you start cannibalizing each other. They had a giant 12-tribe family fight, and that contention and argumentativeness and, and fighting continued on and on for the sort of rest of the story for a while until the 12 tribes were saying, we need a king. We need a king to tell us what to do. We need a king to get us straight and solve all of these problems in our lives. They, they, they wanted a hyper adult because they were not acting like an adult. And they cried and cried and And after a while, God finally sends them judges. If you read the book of Judges, Deborah and Samson, book of Judges, not a king. And these judges were meant to be sort of mediators to help process these 12 tribes and the family feuds. But they didn't really work. And if you read the book of Judges, like weird stuff going on in the book of Judges. Like one of them gets, stabs a king in the throat with a spike and, you have Samson and Delilah. You remember those stories? All these weird stories going on in Judges. And they still didn't have a king. And so they continue to clamor, we want a king. And the book of Judges ends this way, I swear to you. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Now, you see, the issue is God was supposed to be the king. And in following God's kingship... The people would do what was right in God's eyes, not what was right in their own eyes. So uh, a 16-year-old's parents leave town to go visit relatives and say to him, you're in charge, you need to act like an adult. They're gone for two days, guaranteed dimes to dollars. There's going to be a party there that everyone ends up coming to, whether invited or not. That's what happens when the adults leave, the people of Israel knew that they needed this strong, patriarchal God-king to come down and do what God needs to do. And if not that, at least elect some patriarchal, God-like king who can keep us straight. The first king anointed was Samuel. And Samuel lived to a ripe old age and things went pretty well except Samuel decided to anoint his own two sons, typical nepotism, as the next kings and they didn't do so well. And so, bam, kingship didn't turn out so good. And, and so Samuel goes to God and says, look, they're still voicing for a real king, I'm just a prophet king. They're voicing for a real king. What am I supposed to do? And God says to Samuel, listen to them. Listen to the people. They have not rejected you. They've rejected me. Now listen to their voice and only you shall warn them and show them the ways of a king who will rule over them. So Samuel told the people, these will be the ways of the king you want to reign over you. He shall take your sons and put them in chariots and tanks and jets and Humvees. And he will appoint for himself generals and admirals of thousands and government workers of thousands to manage the food and the livestock and the implements of war. And he will take your daughters to be concubines and cooks and bakers he shall take the best of your fields and vineyards. He will take your male and female slaves and your wealth. And on that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you on that day. You made your bed, now sleep in it. But the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel. They said, no, we are determined to have a king over us that we may be like other nations. Saul was the first real king, then King David, held up as the great savior king, except he wasn't always so great. Remember the Bathsheba story and him sending his Bathsheba's husband Uriah out to do battle knowing that he would be murdered in the field? So when, because Bathsheba was expecting and Uriah was not the father, it was in fact David and so it was the cover up. You remember that story? David had his own issues of domination and control and patriarchy. And after David, they waited and waited and waited for the second coming of this messianic king. And and the people uh, from the ground level, the common people, thought that maybe Jesus was that one. And that the religious people knew that Jesus wasn't that one because Jesus didn't come with forces and power and strong arms. Jesus came on the ground healing common people the outsiders, the people who didn't matter. And those religious people didn't want Jesus to be the king, but the common people did want Jesus to be the king. And the authorities were threatened. The Jewish and religious authorities were threatened, and the, and the Roman authorities were threatened because, you see, this Jesus, he could create an insurrection. We've got an empire here to handle Jesus is just this lowly peasant. So, this morning's passage, this encounter with Pilate, it goes something like this. The greatest empire in the world on earth versus the lowly Jesus. Pilate, your people are saying you're a king of the Jews. Is that right? Jesus turns it around. Did you come to this by yourself or were you just set up? I'm not a Jew, am I? It's your people who are behind this. Your people. So what have you done? Since it's all about kingship, Jesus replies, if I'm a king, my kingdom is not from this world. Or if it was from this world, all my people would swoop down and do you in. Ah, so you you claim it. You're a king, Pilate says. No, that's what you say. What I say is that I was born for this, to testify to the truth. And everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Pulling the presidential prerogative, Pilate spits out, What is truth? The showdown between the powers and the political powers of the empire and the power of God in this lowly, humble servant, Jesus. 180 degrees apart... Completely opposite. Jesus is king, we say, but if he is king, he already claimed, I am king of an invisible universe, not of this world. Way before quantum physics in the early 70s, quantum physics existed, but none of us really understood it. Well, we still don't understand it. But anyway, way before all that, in the early 70s, when I was in college, it was in the in the middle of the Vietnam War, and I will use the word debacle, there was so much pain and hurt around that, around that war, as if you're old enough, you well know. And it, it created a ton of cynicism. When I was in college, they had student body elections. And normal people ran for president and so forth, but one particular uh, personality, his name was Niall Frank ran for not only student body president, but king of the invisible universe. And the thing that separated Niall Frank was, one, his complete cynicism about all forms of authority, but, two, is that he had a gustache. that is, a goatee on one side of his face and a mustache on the other side, just to sort of in your face, long hair, and he would wear a purple cape around everywhere he went. Well, Nile Frank won the election for student body president and king of the invisible universe. But the invisible universe Jesus is talking about is not one grounded on cynicism and skepticism. The invisible G- universe that Jesus is talking about is not grounded on warriors and tanks and guns and power. The invisible universe Jesus talks about is one grounded on love. The ultimate power, Jesus says, the ultimate power, Paul says, clanging gong, worthless. All the money in the world, worthless. All the good acts in the world, worthless. What matters? Faith, hope, and love abide these three. The greatest of these is love. Love is the power that God comes to us with, draped in love. And it personifies itself in this one we call Jesus, disclaiming power at every turn for himself, even to the point of giving himself up on the cross. Every single time, Jesus' gift, Jesus' empire, wrong word, Jesus' incarnation, is built on love. Love. It sounds so trite, doesn't it? But you know what? Every time I talk to someone who is near death, they say to me, it's all about love. What does it take for us to get near death before we figure that out? Is it just at that point we get closer to God that we begin a new perception of what that looks like? But in almost every single case, near the end of death, I hear their words it's all about love, of course. It's about relationship. It's about community. It's about connecting. It's not about this, and I hate to use the word because it sounds so politically correct, and, I, I, and, and there's way too much political correctness in our world, but it, it's about something other than the patriarchal worldview worldview that life is lived by the most powerful, the most dominant, the most controlling, the most successful, the biggest, and the strongest. It calls that into question. And ever since, we became, this is way too complicated, so hang in there. At about 6,000 years ago, when we moved from being hunter-gatherers to being an agrarian society, when we were able to store up stuff, That's when patriarchy began to take shape because you needed a strong arm to protect your stuff from the people that were going to steal your stuff. And then later, in about 5,000, the people got a sort of language and a written written language, and they urbanized into a city. And even more do you need a patriarchal presence and a patriarchal God, a strong God, who's going to zap people with lightning to come down because people were going to get your stuff in the urban setting too. And then when the Greeks come along, Aristotle and Plato, philosophers, for sure. But when they come along, they build this whole mountain of stuff underneath this patriarchal worldview, Aristotle says men are born with the image of God in them and women, they have a little bit it was all about patriarchy and then the church comes along and what does it do? It's the same thing, apostolic secession, they were all men they will continue to be men Constantine comes along and says, Christianity is now the world religion. Let's gather all the men and decide what it's going to be like. In the meantime, who's running the show? The women. The women are doing the work. The women are coming from the ground up with no power, while the men sit around and drink tea and issue decrees. The point I'm making is it's time for us to give up on that image of God. God that patriarchal, dominant, controlling male presence. I'm not calling for God to be maternal any more than I'm calling for God to be paternal. It's both and and greater than each. What I'm calling for is when we list God up as that male patriarch, he's way in the distance. Cannot relate. Scared of being vulnerable. That's what My father was. Not till the end of his life was my father able to give up that male patriarchal image of what he was supposed to be like in the world and become more real. We men know it. We're all cowardly lions. We all bluster and bluff and bully because we're scared to death somebody's going to find out how vulnerable we really are. This is the whole point of God in Jesus Christ. God makes God's vulnerability real to us in this incarnational presence of Jesus who comes to us to connect, not hierarchical, this way. Always present with us. The irony of ironies is that the story, if you follow it to the end, is that, you know, the Jews, the religious leaders, it's not fair, the Jews, the religious leaders... Knew that they had Jesus. They knew it because they knew Pilate was going to give in for the sake of peace. So Pilate, to get his own sort of king-like mockery, decides to have a sign put over Jesus' head when he's crucified that says, "King of the Jews." (laughs) Ha ha ha! King of the this is the King of the Jews. He's on the cross. What a joke. And the religious leaders hated that because they said, no, that's not what he said. We want you to write, he said he was the king of the Jews. which he never said. And Pilate said, what is written is written. And Pilate walked from them and went into his, into his restroom and washed his hands and dried them, no longer having to deal with it because he had made the king's decree... And he knew that he could live his life from then on without having to worry about it, for this has now been taken care of. He's dead and buried. And the irony is, Caesar has come and gone. Pilate has come and gone. All of the great kings and patriarchs in all the world, has, they've come and gone. But the very presence of the resurrected Christ steals. Still, still is the ground upon which all love and all real relationships are built. You cannot do it in love. Love is eternal. Amen.